What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. Hello. Welcome to a special edition of Politics by Faith. I'm Mike Slater. Thanks for being here. So we are going to put here on this podcast some TV specials that we've done over the last year or so on the first TV that are especially relevant to what we do here normally. Uh, I pushed for, for these religious-themed specials, and my bosses let me, and they're really good, and I think you'll like them too. And I, I really wanted to start with this one. You have heard your entire life people say that there's a separation of church and state. Is there? Abortion, gay marriage, transgender kids, whatever, all these cultural issues, whenever you bring them up, you hear people on the left say, oh, it's a separation of church and state. You can't force your religion down my throat. You hear all this, right? So you can't have that opinion. You can't enforce that policy. You can't have that conviction. There's a separation of church. You can't force me to do anything. And even the title of our podcast, Politics by Faith, People push back on that, like, oh, what about the separation? And it's like, no, you have it completely backwards. Truly, you have it completely backwards. And that's what this special is all about. We have a couple guests coming up later as well. But the theme is where did this idea of separation of church and state really come from? This is the story of this wall of separation of church and state and how it's the exact opposite of what people say it is today. And the story starts with Roger Williams. So let's pick up the TV episode right here. He was born near London, 1602. He was against the Church of England, became a Puritan. He faced persecution in England, so he came to this brand new place called America. He wasn't in the first wave, but he was shortly after, 1630. And his boat, the Lion, L-Y-O-N, arrived in Nantasket. It was just outside this Puritan settlement of Boston. The very short of the story is he got to Boston and, and they wanted him to become the, the reverend there. But he said no, because he believed the government there had too much control over the church. He called it an unseparated church. So uh, he was convicted of sedition and heresy <laughs> and he fled. 55 miles in the snow. They call it the banishment of Roger Williams. And he created a new settlement called Rhode Island. There's a university in Rhode Island today called Roger Williams University. And this new settlement is where true 
religious freedom would be possible. A true haven for who he called the distressed of conscience. And he started a church, and it's known as the First Baptist Church in America. This was 1639. A couple years after that, 1644, he wrote a document called The Bloody Tenant of Persecution for Conscience' Sake, and Mr. Cotton's letter lately printed, examined, and answered. Mr. Cotton was uh, the head guy over in uh, Boston. So this is in this letter, this, this document, is the first time that he wrote down the lines a wall of separation. This is the genesis of it. All right, ready? Here's the key line here. He said, first, the faithful labors of many witnesses of Jesus Christ existing in the world, abundantly proving that the church of the Jews under the Old Testament and the church of the Christians under the New Testament were both separate from the world. All right, so the church was separate from the world and that when they have opened a gap in the hedge or wall of separation, between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. So garden, good, garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. God hath ever broken down the wall itself, removed the candlestick and made his garden a wilderness. All right, so the beautiful garden of the church, when that wall broke down, God made the garden the wilderness. And that therefore, if he will ever please to restore his garden in paradise again, it must of necessity be walled unto himself from the world. So he's saying, if, he, if, if God wants to make the vineyard and, and the garden uh, safe and beautiful again, he needs to put a wall around it so that it can remain safe from the wilderness of the world. Does that visualization make sense? So the church is the garden, the world, the government is the wilderness. So his point is we need to keep the church walled off from interference of the government. Now this visual here is a reference to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, 5 through 7. Uh, Isaiah wrote that uh, God said uh, to his people, if you sin, I will take your vineyard. All right? here, here's Isaiah. This is God speaking. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. Remember, that's what the word hedge and wall. He used them both. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. So what God is saying here is if you continue to sin, Israel, then God's wrath will be God taking the wall of protection around your vineyard down and your vineyard will be trampled by an ungodly government. Sound familiar? And Roger Williams believed that if God's people sin, then God will let an ungodly government, the wilderness, trample the religious rights of the church, just like when Israel sinned and God let the surrounding godless nations invade and trample them. Does that make sense? Does this wall, this hedge of separation, of protection for the church, does that make sense? That's the genesis of this. A bit of an aside, Roger Williams also referenced a candlestick. It's often translated today as a, a lamp stand. That's in reference to Revelation 2. The, the previous quote I said is, uh, God hath ever broken down the wall itself, removed the candlestick, and made his garden a wilderness. Okay, that's what happens when you sin. Uh, so that's a reference to um, uh, Revelation 2, 5, uh, about the church of Ephesus. Jesus is uh, imploring the church to go back to its first love. 
Go back to your first love, and that is God. And Jesus says, consider how far you've fallen, Church of Ephesus. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And that's exactly what uh, was said earlier about uh, what happens if you were to remove, you sin, God removes this wall of separation and protection, and then uh, the ungodly people come in and remove the candlestick, the lampstand, a place of honor and prestige. All right. So that's where the term wall and separation of church and state came from. But what do they mean by it? Well, there's a great quote from Isaac Bacchus from 1773. He was a Baptist minister. Uh, again, 1773. He said, religious matters are to be separated from the jurisdiction of the state, church, state, separated. So he said, not because the religious matters are beneath the interest of the state, but quite to the contrary, because the religious matters are too high and holy and thus are beyond the competence of the state. So again, you can see the point here. It's not that the church should have no role in the government. It's clearly this wall exists so that the government should have no role in the affairs of the church because the church is of greater value, of greater importance than the state. But when you see abortion activists and pro-gay marriage and blah, 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 all these leftists today, when they talk about the separated church and state, they mean the opposite. They have it backwards. They say that the church should have no role in the government. But that's not what it means at all. Which leads us to Thomas Jefferson. This is what most people think of when they think of separation of church and state. So what's this about when Thomas Jefferson wrote it? It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It was a letter. So the Danbury Baptists were in Connecticut. It was 1801, and they wrote a letter to the newly elected president, Thomas Jefferson. And they were very worried, these Baptists were. Again, uh, the, the Rhode Island church was a Baptist church. The guy we just quoted was Baptist. All these people are Baptists, right? So they were, this Baptist church was very worried that, that Thomas Jefferson uh, was going to interfere in their Baptist religious practices. So they wrote a letter to the president saying, uh, are we sure, can we be sure, can we be confident that you, the government, are not going to interfere in what we do as a church? And here's what the, the Danbury Baptist wrote, among other things. Our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty, that religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals, and that no man ought to suffer a name, person, or effects on account of his religious opinions, that the legitimate powers of civil government extend no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbors. In other words, Mr. President, Mr. Jefferson, will you leave us alone to practice our religion as we see fit? And they went on, they asked Thomas Jefferson if religious freedom is it a favor granted by the government or is it an, an inalienable right that every person has? And Thomas Jefferson, two months later, January like 1st, 1802, responded with this. This is Thomas Jefferson. Believing with you, so I agree with you, that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to no one for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only, not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that whole act or that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislator here's the First Amendment, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. That is a reference to Roger Williams and Isaiah 5. 
clear as day. The Baptist said, will you interfere with our religious practices? And Thomas Jefferson said, no, there is a wall of separation between the government and your religious practices. It is a great perversion to suggest that this wall means religion should have no role in government or that religion should then have no role in the lives of our representatives or even in their official duties. It's ridiculous. It's the exact opposite of what the reality is. And we can prove that, of course, Thomas Jefferson, he ended his letter to the Danbury Baptist saying, uh, I, I appreciate your, your kind prayers for the protection and blessing of the common father and creator of man. Right? If Thomas Jefferson believed that a president should never have anything to do with religion ever, then he wouldn't have ended the letter like that. Not to mention every other thing our founders have ever said about religion and the importance of it. I think the clearest quote of them all, uh, to summarize all the quotes from our founding fathers about the importance of religion, uh, is John Adams. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. John Adams said, you must be a moral and religious people. The idea that the church should have no affair and uh, no, no, no impact on the role of the state will be laughable by our founding fathers. But that is the common belief today, and it is completely backwards. So there's the full story. God and Isaiah saying that if you sin, I will break down your wall and trample your vineyard, Israel. Roger Williams in the 1600s in Rhode Island saying that there's a wall of separation between the ungodly government and the godly church. Let's keep that wall strong so that the church can remain free from government control. And then Thomas Jefferson assuring the Baptist in Connecticut that the government will play no role in the affairs of their church. There's a wall separating the government from the church. Completely flipped on its head to people who know no better today. Believe people, most people believe, almost everyone will believe that it now says that you, that the, excuse me, that the church should have no influence on government, that the church should have uh, no role in our public schools, that there should be no nativity displays, no Ten Commandments in courthouses, and all this other nonsense. But now you know the full story. Don't let people get away with this anymore. The more they remove God from our culture, the more pagan we become. And as Isaiah warned, we will get trampled. We have a little more history that I want to share next on this with our, our wonderful guest. And then we're going to talk about some of the, uh, about how the church is indeed under attack because this wall of separation going the proper way from government to church doesn't exist anymore. It's all coming up next. Glad you're here. Mike Slater, spread the word. Hey, this is Vivek Ramaswamy. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe to The Truth Podcast today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. 
By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey, Cider Crusaders, welcome back to our special about the true history and meaning of separation of church and state. Incredibly important to give us some more historical insight into what our founding fathers were thinking, how they grew up, like the culture they grew up in and what they expected. Uh, Richard Reinsch is here. He's at the Heritage Foundation. He's the director of the Simon Center for American Studies at the wonderful Heritage Foundation. Richard, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Grateful you're here. So we just talked about Roger Williams, and then we led into the Danbury Baptists, the letter that he, they wrote to Thomas Jefferson and what Thomas Jefferson wrote back, the, the, the true meaning of the separation of church and state. It's the opposite of what we think it is today. What do we need to know about that letter, and what do we need to know about that time period uh, to help this all make sense for us? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So Jefferson pins the letter in 1802, to the Danbury Baptist. And you know, the political context of this letter, Jefferson's just been through a very bruising presidential campaign in 1800. He's been accused by his Federalist opponents of being an infidel, uh, an atheist, hostile to religion. He comes into the White House, he's the president. Um, he attends uh, religious services, which are held in federal buildings. So he attends church services in federal buildings uh, he supports and signs legislation that appropriated money for the printing of a Bible, and he supported missionary efforts to Native American tribes at the time. So Jefferson himself did not regard this principle that he, uh, that, that it's come to be interpreted as, as operative necessarily to his public conduct. He writes this letter to the Danbury Baptist because there's this continued accusations against him for not issuing proclamations of thanksgiving, prayer, and fasting that John Adams and George Washington, his predecessors, had issued. So he writes this letter to the Danbury Baptist, explaining himself, as it were, to them. The Danbury Baptists are in Connecticut. They are religious dissenters in that state. The Congregationalists have uh, official state control. They have been uh, intolerant towards the Baptists in, in various ways. And Jefferson writes to them, uh, to suggest that he does not sympathize or support the treatment that they've received. He thinks there should be a high wall of separation between church and state. But what's crucial there for Jefferson is this is about state governments and churches, or I should say the federal government and churches. He's not necessarily speaking to state governments because the, under, the constitutional understanding at the time was the First Amendment applied only to the federal government. And what it meant was do not establish a national church or have federal law take cognizance of religion, that is to say, impose official disabilities, legal disabilities on people uh, for their real religious creed that they happen to be in. States were very different. The state governments could 
there were state churches at the time. They could. Uh, they had strong support, uh, law supporting morality, religion, things like that. And so he is writing to say high wall of separation between the federal government uh, and religious congregations. It's not a dispassionate assessment by Jefferson. He is, this is not someone necessarily speaking and uh, as a scholar of, of constitutional law, this is someone speaking very politically and very charged. When he writes that mm. metaphor to them of the wall of separation, high wall of separation, um, he's also revealing that, you know, Thomas Jefferson was, was not a framer. Who's not in the Constitutional Convention that gives us the Constitution, and he's not a part of any of the state ratifying conventions that are going to call for a Bill of Rights, which the Bill of Rights is then going to get introduced by Madison, the first Congress. When Jefferson uh, says that, he's really outside of a strong consensus at the American founding and in the early republic, and, and which holds throughout much of our history that freedom and virtue go together. They rise and fall together. If we're gonna be a free people, we have to be a virtuous people. If we're gonna be a virtuous people, then we need strong religion. And that means that government, rather than being hostile to religion, are neutral to religion, should support it uh, and foster it. And so when he writes that metaphor, even the Danbury Baptist, according to one historian, Daniel Dreisbach, they're even taken uh, aback a bit uh, by this metaphor, because what it would seem to suggest is there could be, there's just, there's a barrier between religion and state, and religion couldn't even influence uh, the government in, in various ways. And most people of religious faith, uh, and, and the Danbury Baptists are no exception, don't leave their faith at home or in the closet. It's a part of their life. It's an integrating part of their life. It's how they think, speak, and act. And they necessarily want to do that in a political vein when they're being political. So there's there's all sorts of problems uh, with the metaphor, but it's it's become widely misinterpreted. Americans think, for example, it's many Americans, if you poll them, think that it's actually in the Constitution. It's not. It's cited for the first time by the Supreme Court in 1947 in the Everson case. The Everson case involved parents receiving state money uh, to fund religious education during school hours. Um, uh, the money that uh, that was used, there was no like, uh, you know, it could be used for any religion, uh, religious education. And the court upholds the law, but introduces this principle that they get from Jefferson, wow. high wall of separation of church and state. It's impregnable. We could not approve of the slightest breach. And what, what begins to happen after this opinion is this, it, it, it gets applied to thinking about the establishment clause. And it begins to, you know, taint and obstruct free exercise of religion. And you get the situation where free exercise becomes impossible because it's seen as, if it interacts in any way with, the, with government, as sort of uh, establishing religion. So you, you have this distortion uh, throughout our, our religious clause jurisprudence for the next 70 to 80 years of, wow. of a secularist republic that can have no interaction really between the state and churches. Of course, it's untenable, it's unworkable. And so the Supreme Court at the same time has to come up with all manner of unprincipled compromises. I mean, are we gonna have congressional chaplains? We have military chaplains. Are we gonna strike out a lot of ways in which you know, we have prayers uh, in various public forum? And you know, the court shifts, it meanders, there's no principled way for it to reconcile this. Are we gonna have uh, you know, we have many towns in America with with you know, religious names. So how are you going to come down on all of these? 
Uh, are you gonna, our church is no longer gonna receive official state protection? Are they gonna be outside of the sphere of all the laws because we can't have any intermingling? And they have no way really to resolve this. So it's, it's not a helpful metaphor in the law. It's a confusing metaphor. And I think the history of it is it was applied in a very secularist manner. What's interesting, tons of interesting things, but one of them is that perhaps the Danbury Baptists themselves originally were concerned, like, ooh, maybe people could misinterpret this metaphor as going the other way. Uh, and indeed, that's what we've done uh, since then. Um, I've, uh, we only have about like two minutes. I got two quick questions. Fascinating, when I first learned that the states and the colonies had their own official religions, like you mentioned the Congregationalists in Connecticut, Yale was a Congregationalist seminary, essentially, right, as if it found it. So it's fascinating that the colonies had their own official religions. Uh, can you speak to that? And like, what, did, what, was the, what were the Founding Fathers' views on the states having their own, even official, religions? So I think basically, you know, there's a breakdown. There's a consensus in the American founding and the Constitutional Convention that the federal government receives delegated enumerated powers from the people. And it has largely general ends, commerce, national defense, um, uh, ensuring that America and each of its whole and, and its parts is a whole country. And the federal government is going to sort of be able to regulate and tax Americans individually. And so you're trying, they're moving away clearly from the Articles of Confederation, where the states have control largely over you know, whatever national power exists. And, and the key to that is giving the federal government sort of a unitary power in certain spheres. That's why the enumerated powers concept matters. When it comes to morality and religion, the federal government uh, has little if any power there for these reasons, the recognition of the power of religion and the power of religion when it's joined to the state. But uh, there's, there's an awareness that the states have of religious churches. There's um, the, the sense that uh, you want the states to support public morality. They have a police power over morals. And religion is just a part of that. Mm. It's seen to be a part of that. And there's, you know, there, there's dissension, obviously. Uh, these are also state churches. I, I don't want to speak uh, too broadly here. They don't have sort of the bite uh, that you might think of. I mean, there's a requirement in Massachusetts. There are requirements in the Massachusetts state constitution that John Adams writes for attending religious services and appropriating money for religious services. They're also, you know, sort of you, know, you might think of as carve-outs uh, for people who are not a part of the of the official church. Um, so, yeah, you have this throughout. You have this throughout the states, um, and you have strong morals legislation throughout the states. But this yeah, which, is also a which part was, of, I want, yeah, which I want to talk about later. Like all laws are based on morality, and uh, yeah, when you lose the morality, uh, chaos ensues. Hence, where we are, Richard. I, I hate to have to run here, uh, but let's absolutely do it again. Richard Reinch from the wonderful Heritage Foundation. Richard, thank you for your insight. Thank you so much. Well done. It's perfect. Uh, we're gonna come back with uh, some of the lawyers who fought for one of the religious freedom cases in the Supreme Court with the high school football coach. And then also we'll talk with a pastor about how to talk to people in a pagan culture about what freedom of religion really means. That's next. Mike Slater, spread the word.
right, Slider Crusaders, welcome back to our special on the separation of church and state. So we just spent a good amount of time on the history of this phrase. Let's bring it to present and future times right now. Leah Patterson is here. She's a counsel at the First Liberty Institute. And Lucas Miles, who's from Summit Ministries, he's also author of The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. And, uh, and also good God, the one we want to embrace in, but are afraid to embrace. Leah, Lucas, how are both of you? Good, how are you? I'm grateful you guys are both here. Leah, I wanna start with you. Uh, Liberty First Institute represented Joe Kennedy. He's the high school football coach who prayed at the 50 yard line after each game and then was fired because of it. And the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. Thank you, First Liberty Institute. Well done, Leah, well done everyone there. Uh, we're grateful for you guys. Before we get to that case though, what has been Give us a nice little overview of the last maybe 70 years or so of the Supreme Court's interpretation of the, the uh, First Amendment and, and the Congress shall not uh, make any laws respecting the establishment of religion. What does that really mean or how did the court interpret that? Well, the past 70 years or so have seen a lot of development in what that means. So I'd say for about the past 50 years, the court interpreted the Establishment Clause under the Lemon versus Kurtzman test. So. What that said is that the Establishment Clause prohibited the government from appearing to endorse religion. And if it made someone feel uncomfortable that they, you know, if they saw a cross-shaped memorial that they had an objection to, then they could file a lawsuit and say that the government was endorsing religion. Okay, well, in the Coach Kennedy case, the Supreme Court at last rejected that test and said that that's not actually how we interpret what an establishment of religion is. Instead, what we do in, in court is we go back and look at the history and tradition of the founders and see what did they understand an establishment of religion to be. And in that context, they're talking about, you know, the founders were looking at, you know, the federal government coming in and establishing an actual church. That's what they were concerned about. That's what the Establishment Clause prohibits. What the Establishment Clause does not prohibit is a teacher or a coach praying on their own time. And that's what the court held mm. in the Coach Kennedy case. Oh, so good and so clear. The difference, the clear difference you would think between establish a religion and what you say, seemingly endorse one. Uh, those are clearly completely different things. I'm glad the court's finally drawing that proper distinction. Um, Lucas, I wanna get your perspective here as a, uh, as a pastor and how this, uh, let's say, misunderstanding of the true meaning of separation of church and state how that has affected uh, our culture over all these years. Uh, how has it affected the church? How has this legal perversion affected the church over all these years? So let me maybe put a little bit of a spin on this. You know, as much as the left talks about the separation of church and state, I believe at the end of the day, what they really want is not the separation of church and state, but they want a church that's subservient to the state. They want a church that will bow down, that will do what it's told, that will agree with them on every single issue. And, you know, they're just not going to get that from Bible-believing Christians, you know, in America. And so uh, I think that as, as Christians, we have to recognize that, yes, th there should be a separation of church and state in the sense that the state should never be able to tell the church what to do. But I do believe that the church should always be close enough to the state in order to be her conscience. And I think that that's really mm -hmm. what it means about being a good kind of uh, citizen of this world as well as a citizen of the kingdom of God in this country. All right, really well said. What is it going to look like, Lucas, when the government, and correct me, maybe I'm way off here, maybe I'm going too far, when the government says, churches, you must sanction same-sex marriage. Is that 
a th is that a thing that could potentially come? Or the government says, we're no longer going to give you tax-exempt status unless you do this. I mean, if tyranny, you know, flourishes, I mean, there's any of those things can come. I mean, that's always that's always a risk, you know, when when tyranny is allowed to, you know, continue. I mean, fortunately, right now we're, we're just on the early phases of that. But it's enough that I think it should it should wake up most of us to go, look, we don't like the direction that this is going. Uh, I, I think at the, I mean, we have a lot of examples in church history of, of times where uh, the state has tried to dictate things to churches for them to do. Um, and ultimately, it, it usually doesn't go well for the church in the sense that persecution, you know, ensues. But, you know, as I think it was Tertullian, you know, said that the death of the martyr is the seed of the church. And so, you know, if, if it comes down to persecution, you're just going to see Christianity spread even more so uh, as, as people stand up for their faith. So uh, I, I hope it doesn't come like that, but, but either way, we're ready for it. That is absolutely true. Uh, Leah, what is another, uh, can you give us another example of, of how this separate church and state or this, this idea has been under attack, its proper interpretation of the idea, and then uh, what you see the Supreme Court doing in the future here with cases like this after the Joe Kennedy ruling? Well, you know, what we've seen historically over the past decades is an attitude that, that treats the phrase separation of church and state as though it's part of the Constitution when it really isn't. And one of the things that the Supreme Court has reaffirmed in multiple cases of ours, including the American Legion case from a few years ago, is that when you require the government to roam the land tearing down religious monuments, that's hostility, that's not neutrality. So we hope to see the court continue to build on this good line of cases that it has established, and I think we will. Why, Leah, does religious freedom matter? Why is that important? We gotta get back to well, basics here, right? Why is it, why even care? <laughs> well, there are a lot of reasons to care, but the, the primary reason for me is that the government needs to know that it is not in fact the final authority in the universe and a people that mm. are free religiously are free in other ways as well. Last question for you, Leah. How do you, how does the court interpret uh, someone who comes along and says, oh, it's my religious belief that, and then comes up with some crazy thing that they're allowed to do because of their religion, right? Like, like something that's illegal, but they're like, oh, my religion says it's okay for me to do this uh, horrific thing. How does the court, and they're like, it's my religion, right? So how does the court interpret that claim? Well, you know, it's going to depend a lot on the underlying facts of that kind of issue. But based on what you're describing, it sounds like the court would be looking at the sincerity. Like, do you really believe what you're saying or did you just make it up because it's convenient? So that's going to be a, a question that what I, I would expect in that kind of case. Yeah. Uh, Lucas, what do we do in our growing pagan culture? And specifically, how is an individual to talk to someone who grew up in this pagan world with pagan morals and values and who believes that, you know, the separated church and state is in the constitution and I'm not allowed to, the government, we can't really talk about these things out loud even. And they're just going to go with uh, the, the progressive world, world view that we have today. What's your advice on how to talk to people? Yeah, a couple of things on that. I mean, first off, the Bible tells us that Jesus came in grace and truth. And I think that it's important mm. That we learn how to balance those two things, you know, and, and really have them operate together. It doesn't mean a little bit of truth and a little bit of grace, but but complete truth, absolute truth, and and the fullness of grace is really what we need to walk in. And so what that looks like is it allows us on an individual level to have compassion, to have real conversation, to, you know, to empathize with people who are struggling through various issues. 
but it also puts us in a position where we never bend on the truth and we never compromise, you know, what we believe or ultimately what scripture teaches, you know, just for the sake of culture. And so, uh, you know, publicly I, I, I talk truth. Uh, but when I'm dealing with people on an individual level, I'm oftentimes leading with grace and then hoping to lead them to a point of conversation of truth. And so uh, there's certainly some emotional intelligence and some balance. And, and ultimately, we just rely on God's grace to navigate that. But I think the Christians just need to be bold. Um, we need to be loving. And, uh, and I think we just need to you know, refuse to, to bow down to uh, um, you know, anyone who tries to subject an you know, opinion on us contrary to our faith. I'm grateful for both of you coming at this from two different angles, but the same truth. Leah Patterson from the First Liberty Institute keeps winning in the Supreme Court. Well done, Leah. And Lucas Miles from Summit Ministries, spreading the good word. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to come back and talk about this pagan culture that we live in right now. And you see it everywhere, but I want to boil it down to two specific forms that it takes. And the truth is, the pagan church is trying to impose their morals and values on you. I'll explain that next. Mike Slater, spread the word. Hey, Slater Crusaders, welcome back to our special about the separation of church and state and the true meaning of that term. So we live in a pagan culture today. There is a pagan church today that most people belong to, whether they know it or not, that is imposing its morality on the rest of us. When the pagans of today say that we need a, we need, you know, we need a separation of church and state, what they really mean is that we need to prevent Christian morality from influencing policy. Why do they say that? Well, because they want their pagan church to influence policy and everyone's lives. That's what that is. When they say separate church and state, what they really mean is Christianity. They don't want it. They'll say, you know, you can't legislate morality. You hear that all the time. You can't legislate morality. Of course you can. All laws are based on morality. Every law is based on a moral code. Why is it illegal to murder someone? Why? We say, well, that's, it's wrong to murder someone. Okay, who, who says? Well, our, our, it just is. Our, our moral code says it's wrong. Okay, well, what moral code? Yeah, a religious one. Specifically, thou shalt not murder. Oh, yeah. It's like that with every law. In the House of Representatives chamber, there are 23 marble reliefs of different people in history who have contributed to the field of law. And it's amazing. It goes from Hammurabi in 1700 BC to William Blackstone in England, right? The person who has the place of most prominence among the 23 is right above the entrance. When you walk into the house chambers, it's right above you. And it's a picture of Moses representing the Ten Commandments, representing law based on Morality from God. Our entire country is based off of a moral code based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And the atheists of today, and this is really important, the atheists of today, they don't just want to eliminate that Judeo-Christian ethic and leave us with nothing. They want to eliminate that ethic and replace it with their own pagan ethic, 
That is essential to know. People think, oh, I'm an atheist or agnostic, and I just want to get rid of your Christian views and replace it with nothing. No, no, no. It's no such thing. What's the old expression? Uh, if you say you fall for, uh, you don't believe in something, you'll fall for, or fall for anything, right? And that's what these people are. They're falling for anything. And they'll fall always and impose on you a pagan ethic. Now, what is this pagan ethic? The pagan religion has two broad forms that we see a lot today. There's two aspects of this pagan, or two manifestations, that's a good way to put it, two manifestations of the pagan worldview. The first is worshiping the created and not the creator. Worshiping the created, the earth, mother nature, and not God. Jane Goodall is a good example of this. Jane Goodall, uh, she's the famous monkey scientist, environmentalist lady. Here she is speaking at the World Economic Forum. We cannot hide away from human population growth because, you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. Yeah, Jane, uh, 500 years ago, there were 400 million people on the planet, which is about the population of America right now around the entire world. So it'd be like a 90% cut to the world population. It's quite the genocide, Jane. But why does she support that? Well, because it's Mother Earth above everything else. There'd be none of these environmental problems if there just weren't so many darn people. Jane Goodall worships the planet. She worships the created, not the creator. Another example of this, this is this guy, Sandguru. He's a cult leader in India. He's the founder of the Aisha Foundation or Isha Foundation, some wackadoodle pagan cult in India. Like, look at this, look at this guy's like, this is like the compound that this guy created, right? They do yoga three times a day, and it's just ridiculous. Uh, but it's like, a, it's like an environmentalist activist group, too. So they, they like combine spirituality and environmental political activism into one uh, pagan cult. So, and this nut, this Sadhguru guy, he has influence over your life because of his role at the World Economic Forum. Here he is. So in the session we just attended here at the Economic Forum, I think there was a sense of relief, actually, in your frankness. Um, you brought up some issues that, that others are reluctant That's my to trouble. bring up. <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> All the religious groups are against me because I'm talking about population. They want more souls. I want less on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> It may look like there are many problems, but actually there's only one problem. We are nice, but we're just too many. This we need to understand. Believe me, it is much easier to control human population than human aspirations. You cannot control human aspirations. You can easily control human population if everybody is focused on that. The nations, the religions of the world, various community leaders, everybody, if they are focused on seeing how to bring down the population of this planet, human population, so that other populations can live. Yikes. Other populations. That's animals, right? It's the earth. By the way, I love like the laugh, that like the maniacal laugh. I think there's too many souls. <laughs> what? But that's their belief, too many people. Because the earth, the earth needs to breathe. The earth needs to be free. The earth needs to flourish. You're hurting Mother Nature. The earth needs to heal. 
They worship the creature and not the creator. These are idol worshipers. They worship Mother Nature and created things, not the creator of all things. And when you do that, you can go astray very quickly. The second way, the second group of people that paganism manifests itself, the second way that paganism manifests itself today is the, uh, the transhumanist movement, the, the big tech people who think that we can live forever. In general, these are people who worship science. So they either worship uh, the planet, like we just talked about, or they worship science. They think that science can solve all of our problems. This is why so many scientists thought that the cause of depression was a chemical imbalance. Because to these pagan scientists who believe in evolution, there is no soul. We're all just a random assortment of chemicals and random reactions that were brought about by evolution, right? So it's like, oh, well, if we are just chemicals, then you're just chemicals, and even love is just a chemical reaction in your brain that entices you to procreate, to continue the species. That's all it is anyway. So uh, if you're just chemicals and something's wrong with your brain, oh, that means there's an imbalance of chemicals, and we'll solve that with science. And we'll just take this pill that has the perfect amount of chemicals for your brain so that you can be happy, right? That's paganism perfectly exhibited right there. And we've gone 30 years with that, so that belief before it was just recently uh, proven to be not true. This is also why you have these scientists uh, praise the models. Oh, the models. They always believe and worship their models. They have models for COVID. They have models for global warming. And they've made these advanced models. You wouldn't understand, but they worship them. And they, they put this algorithm together, this formula with different numbers that they throw in there. And they say, oh, yeah, here's how many people are going to die from COVID. Uh, but if we have this many people wear masks, then we'll, oh, look, we'll reduce the number of COVID deaths by this amount. Oh, so says the model. Oh, the model. And same thing with Sri Lanka and the Netherlands and now Canada. Canada just reduced their fertilizer use, or their say the Canadian government mandated that farmers reduce their fertilizer use by 30%. But they do that because, oh, if we put that in the model, if we reduce fertilizer by 30%, we put it in the brilliant model, then we'll, we'll reduce greenhouse gases and it will uh, uh, cool the planet by one degree over the next 100 years. Praise science! Hail science! Just a bunch of pagans. And I'll tell you the truth. Hard to hear. Read a book. What do pagans do? What do all pagans eventually do? Well, the same thing that pagans have always done. They kill babies. They eat each other. They have sex with anything that moves. Because there's no rules anymore. There's no rules. Who are you to say anything I do is wrong? Who are you to say? I always laugh at that, too. It's like, well, who are you to say? What do you mean, who am I to say? I'm a, I'm a person who wants to live in a properly functioning civilization. We need to be wise, have a moral code, and enforce it with the law. Oh, but separation of church... You got it backwards. Right now, Christians have no influence in our government. The pagans do. We're run by pagans. Pagans who want to sterilize your children, for instance all part of their pagan death cult. They have their own moral ethic, no question, and they are enshrining it in law. And then they have the gall to tell you 
you can't legislate morality. What are you talking about? That's what you're doing. Oh, there's a separation of church and state. Yeah. How about we build a wall of separation between the pagan church and the government? And we can rebuild a culture truly built on Judeo-Christian values. Grateful you've been here today. I'm grateful now you know the true story of the separation of church and state. Please go now and spread the word. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. We have many more of these specials to give you. These are the specials we've done on the TV show uh, in the last year that are relevant here. And uh, we just put them here as a little extra. And of course, do what we've been doing. Grateful for you subscribing, spreading the word, five-star reviews. Got to get to a thousand five-star reviews. We can break that algorithm. Thank you so much for being here. Politics by faith. Mike Slater. See you tomorrow. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.